so good to be around you folks again. But I have to say, I truly, truly miss the brothers and sisters in India. Uh, we had decided we'll hold off doing the, the update of the trip until Dan and Eva are back. Dan and Eva are still in India. They, they went back down south after we parted ways in Hyderabad. They went back to Chennai where Dan's parents are uh, to spend a little more time with his parents who are like 94 and 93. His dad has got more energy than any five of us. Um, he, went on a, he went with us throughout all the villages and near the Bhutan border and all that back in 2017. Joanne, you were there too. Oh my gosh, uh, he, he didn't miss a step and then he'd get up and preach and I, I don't know where he gets the energy. But anyway, they were down, they're down there. So they won't be back until sometime next week. And I want them to be here to assist in the update. The Lord is doing such amazing things in Italy. Every time I go, it just absolutely humbles me. Uh, the love for the Lord that's there is astounding. It's encouraging. I, I always feel like I come away having gotten more than I left with them. But I have to say this, and this is something I learned on this trip more than the uh, previous two trips I've made. The hunger for the word of God and the need for deeper teaching in, in their overall understanding of their faith is, is huge. I, I did, in two different locations, I did four segments in a row of a prophecy survey. Now, it's a survey that I did with you guys that we took about, I don't know, nine or 10 or 12 weeks doing, and I did in four sessions with them. And man, they sat there and they were attentive for the whole time, just a little couple of tiny breaks. And I'm wondering, when are people going to fall? When am I going to fall over? <laughs> and they just are just like sponges that soak it up. And there's such a great need for that. And uh, the thing that, that uh, there are two things that just, I, I just can't get out of my mind. Uh, one is amazing and the other is a trivia. The amazing thing is the sincerity of their worship. And I hope you'll see that in some of the video that we show next week. The heart that's in every word that they sing just moves me so much. I get weepy. Um, we did a, 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 a church service basically on Sunday, uh, the 16th, and the place was packed. I mean, it was probably a hall that was supposed to hold about 400, and there was probably 600 in there. The amazing thing was, after the worship of that, that program, I went back and I listened to what you guys did. We did two of the same songs. And this reminded me how much your prayers sustained us on that trip. Because, uh, you know, 12 days, nine different flight segments, 21,000 air miles. And that brings me to the second thing that I can't get out of my mind. The traffic. The traffic in India is like this chaotic yet totally synchronous ballet of motorbikes and three-wheeled cabs and cars pulling out and people in the middle of the street and cows and more cows and goats and dogs and every dog is the same dog. <laughs> and it somehow all works and no one gets killed. It's... You're going to see some of that video, and, and my Dan and Eva laugh at me because I keep filming when we're in the car because I can't get over how this works. But it was your prayers. It was your prayers. Believe me, I mean, I know not everyone can go halfway across the world to, to do something, but the 
the funds that you make available to this church make that possible. You'll see the husband of the woman that we raised money for a couple years ago for her breast cancer surgery. Unfortunately, the Lord took her home. But the gratitude of that man was astounding. And just there's so many stories, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But I just, I just want to thank you so much um, just, just to be able. You know, we, we have this little fellowship here, and, and you could kind of look at, you know, the scope of what we do and, and, and think, well, it's, it's a little something. But it's very much like the church in Philadelphia and the fact, the fact that God has made a little bit of capability for us, and, and it's affecting the other part of the world. And a whole other side of the world is being blessed because you folks have, have poured into that. You, you've prayed. You, you've provided funding and I hope we never lose that as a church because we're so rich compared to anybody you meet there. It's just astounding how much, how much we can do with just what is relatively little. You will spend more money today at lunch than people will spend to eat for a week. And they won't be eating poorly. They'll be eating pretty good. But it's just the difference, and not to mention the dollars brute force right now. It's very strong. So thank you so much for all of your support uh, while we were away and getting ready to be away. And, and um, I can just tell you your prayers were answered in so many ways. And uh, I can't thank you enough. Well, we're going to continue on in our study through the book of Colossians. We're only on our second study now. And I apologize. There was well, a three-week hiatus there between the first lesson and now this one. And today we're only going to take up five verses, but man, they are so important. It's Colossians chapter 1 between verses 15 and 20. And I entitled the Bible study, Totally Necessary, Totally Sufficient. Now, when I studied in college, I actually took a minor in philosophy. And I, philosophy deals also with the study of logic. And in logic, in the study of logic, two terms are used that describe relationships between two statements. One of those terms is necessary, and the other term is sufficient. And we say one statement is, is a necessary condition of another if that first statement must be true in order for it to be possible that the second statement be true. So here's an example. Being a mammal is necessary to the condition of being a man. you got to be a mammal before you can even be possibly be a man. can't be a reptile. Well, we won't go there. <laughs> now, when we describe one condition as being sufficient relative to another, then we say that that first condition, if it, if it is a sufficient condition, it means the other statement must be true. So, for example, if a number is divisible by two, it must be an even number. Totally sufficient condition, right? Well, these principles of logic underlie the way people think about their salvation and also the way they think about Jesus relative to salvation. Most people in the world, and, and by the way, I was just with 1.3 billion people in India, and I think I met about a billion one of those. <laughs> I certainly was breathed upon by at least that many. For those of you who are bubble people, Samantha, you're a bubble person. There's no bubble in India. In fact, there's negative bubble, okay? You're close. Everywhere you go, you're close. But most of the people in the world do not see Jesus as a necessary condition for salvation. Hindus, Muslims, Jainists, Baptists, uh, uh, Buddhists. I was, 
not Baptist, Buddhist. <laughs> they don't see Jesus as a necessary condition at all. They don't see Jesus at all, okay? But within the, the greater realm of people who believe in Jesus or proclaim Jesus, there are many of those that don't see belief in Jesus as sufficient for their salvation. In other words, they believe that something besides Jesus is necessary in order to have full salvation. And this is the problem that, that Paul is addressing in this letter to the Colossians. I told you in the first lesson that we had that the book of Colossians has as its overarching theme the preeminence of Jesus Christ. When you think of preeminence, it means the all-sufficient one, totally sufficient, nothing else needed. He's above everything else. And yet, unfortunately, uh, there was a heresy entering into the church in Colossae. And this, this heresy was undermining, was kneecapping the principle of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. They had come under the influence of a heretical teaching that challenged the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And this, this heresy would, as time went on and moving into the second century, it would become known as Gnosticism. You've probably heard that term before. And Gnosticism had a couple of pernicious elements that really undid the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. First of all, it incorporated some, not all, but some Jewish elements in the sense that there was a requirement of obeying certain laws and rituals that had carried over from the Jewish faith. And by the way, these were not Jewish people promoting this necessarily. It had mystic elements to it. By mystic, I mean that, that it was put upon people that they had to require, they had to acquire rather this special knowledge. This is where this gnosis idea came from. Gnosis means to know. And, and it was almost cultic in that you had to have this special knowledge. Uh, it involved worship of angels as mediators between humans and God. It, it was cultic in that it, it promised a special privilege and perfection to those that went in that Gnostic way. And it, it, this is one of the worst things that it, it taught, was that it challenged the combined deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. The theologians call this the hypostatic union. And this is a very important concept in understanding the ministry of Christ. Christ could never be the perfect sacrifice for you and me, were it not that he was fully human. And yet, because of everything else we know about Jesus in the Bible, he also has to be coincident with that fully God. There is nothing else that you can see in all of creation that you can liken to the hypostatic union that is only true about Jesus Christ. And yet the Gnostics denied this and they denied it on the basis that they believed that all matter, all things in the physical realm were evil. Matter was in inherently evil. And by the way, this led them in two different extremes in the way they led their lives. Because matter is inherently evil and the only thing that matters is spirit. Many who attach themselves to Gnosticism lived a life of, of sinfulness and lasciviousness because they figured, well, it doesn't matter what I do in the body because the body's evil anyway. And those who 
attached themselves to Gnosticism, Gnosticism, but went in the opposite direction, direction, became like the Stoics, and they denied their bodies of all kinds of just basic necessities. Either way, they were dead wrong. And so the, this, this underlying philosophy was something that was starting to corrupt the church in Colossae. And let me tell you that whether, regardless of what name it goes by, and it goes by many other different names in our, in our time frame, these same kinds of heretical doctrines and, and corrupted thoughts about how we relate to Jesus are very prevalent in our day. Very prevalent in our day. You can see in a number of different offshoots of Christianity, some call them Christian cults, how they've added to They've added to the sufficiency of Christ. They put upon people that, well, yeah, the, we, we take the Mormons, for example. Yeah, we believe the Bible. But here's the Book of Mormon. You've got to know that, too. And there's things that, that you have to do and line up with in order to have the possibility of right standing with God. This is the same lie that's just blossomed over the centuries, but it's the lie of the garden that you can be as God. Human beings have this hardwired tendency to want to have to do, to tinker, to, to save ourselves because we can be as gods. And Paul is trying to rescue this church from this corrupted doctrine so that they will understand that Jesus has done it all once and for all. And so today we're going to look at what Paul teaches in just five short verses. And, and when I looked at these verses, you know, I, I, I looked at myself and I, I thought, you know, what we learn in these verses should be the heart of our prayers of adoration to God. And this should be the heartbeat of the worship that we give to God because of who he is. And that's what these verses tell us. First, he is almighty God. Secondly, he is the creator of all things. Thirdly, he is the sustainer of all things. Fourth, he is the head of the church. And five, he is the reconciler of all things. These are the things that Paul describes in these, these verses. And they are so foundational. They are so, when you hear me read them, it almost sounds trite. It's like, well, of course, we know that. But the things that we think we know the best are the things we concentrate sometimes on the least. And these are so important to remind ourselves of daily so that we know exactly the God we serve. Because it's sometimes when we forget who exactly we're dealing with that we get cavalier in our faith. We get sloppy. And before we know it, we're pulled away from the hand of God and we're on to our own thing, which is always a... A disaster. So if you would please stand with me, we're going to read these verses all at once. It's not a very long passage, but it is a deeply profound passage. Here's what Paul writes. He says, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. 
For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Father, <laughs> wow, what, what a resume, Lord. What an amazing God we serve. And Lord, that you would take such great care to send us your son that we might know God through the person of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that through the course of this message, all of us would draw nearer to you in our deepened understanding of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's look at verse 15, because this is the first attribute that, that supports the preeminence of Christ. And this is the one where, of course, Paul begins with, he is God. Now, Scripture teaches us that the true essence of God is a spirit. First, uh, John chapter 1, verse 18 tells us, no one has seen God at any time. Now, he's talking about the essence, the the heart of God. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is the, in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. John 4, 24 tells, him that God, tells us that God is spirit. God, in his infinite wisdom, and because he created us, he knows that we can tend to get tragically wrong in our understanding of things that are not visible, tangible, touchable things to us sentient beings. We tend to want to make a construct out of things that we cannot see, and we're typically wrong because we're flawed in our sin nature. And so we would have a great difficulty, in fact, we would go tragically wrong, if we were to relate to the holy, invisible God without having a way to relate that conforms or comports with what we are, which is a three-part being, including a physical body that experiences the tangible world. And so what these verses tell us is that because no one has seen God at any time, God has raised up and given us Jesus, a human being, who is someone that we can relate to as another person. God has declared himself to us through Jesus Christ. We're told here in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, men, we're studying this on Tuesday nights, and by the way, we will be on this Tuesday night, finishing up chapter 6 of Hebrews. But in the very first chapter, the third verse, we are told about Jesus, that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. And the way that, word, that phrase express image is used, it's not suggesting a pretty good likeness, close resemblance, kind of godlike. It tells us that he is an exact representation or revelation of God. Now, we might, again, because of who we are, we might really kind of focus on that and say, well, gee, then I wonder what Jesus really looks like. And I wonder, is he handsome? Uh, we know from Isaiah's prophecy 
that he did not have the kind of appearance that would draw you to him based on his appearance. We read, for example, about King Saul, that he was a head taller than everybody else. He was the guy, if he walked in the room, every eye would look at him. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus had an appearance that no one would really necessarily notice. See, when we, when we read that Jesus is the express image of, of God's person and his glory, it's the character of Jesus. It's the way in which Jesus relates, the way in which he communicates, the way in which he loves, the way in which he authors justice. These things that we read about Jesus in the Gospels is the express image of God Almighty because he is part of that Godhead. This is why Jesus would emphasize this when he was with his disciples. John 14, 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 10, 30. I and my Father are one. These are very important concepts. Do you realize how many so-called theologians have entered into the overall big tent of Christianity and have made a name for themselves and have sold millions of books challenging the deity of Jesus Christ? An individual who has attended what people would think is the, the, the cream of the crop of all of the seminaries and Bible colleges in this nation and now teaches up the road, Bart Ehrman, Started his life as a, as a minister, but only for about a year or so. And now he has made a name for himself. Challenging the deity of Jesus Christ. I just read you two verses out of John's gospel. Where Jesus blatantly lays out that he is God. And Bart Ehrman will shoot that in the head and say, well... You know, the Gospel of John was written 60 years after the Gospel of Mark, which was the first one. And Jesus never said he was God in Mark's Gospel. Well, he's wrong about that. I mean, with due respect, he's wrong. If you look at Mark chapter 2, I didn't plan to go there, but it just makes me mad. Because people, people get by, smart people, if they have enough initials after their name, they can lie blatantly and people will believe it. And when you try and challenge them on it, they point to the initials. But Jesus clearly, in chapter 2 of, of Mark's gospel, he heals a paralytic man, but he doesn't heal him right away. He comes to the paralytic man. The man's obviously in need of help. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Pharisees are astounded. They said, well, who is this man who thinks he could forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus didn't even hear them. He heard them in their hearts. And Jesus says, do you think it's easier for someone to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? But so that you will believe, he tells the man, rise up and walk, and he does. That is a smack in the forehead with a two-by-four two declaration that he's God. Everybody in the room understands that only God could forgive sins, and they know that only God could tell that man to get up and walk, and so Jesus proves it twice. And yet these people make Lots of money, writing books, denying the deity, or the, the, um, the, the deity of Jesus Christ. And this is tragic because there are people who have kind of bought into this liberal theology that, that reduces Jesus to a great moral example, a good teacher, a good guy. He, hey, he's right up there with Buddha. You know, he's right up there with Mahatma Gandhi. No, he's not. He's preeminent. 
We read there that he is the firstborn of every creature. This is what we learn there in verse 15 of our text. That word firstborn translated from a Greek word, prototokos. And prototokos speaks less about chronological first and more about uh, hierarchical first. And so, for example, uh, Solomon had a hierarchical advantage over his brothers in, in ascending the throne after David, even though he was not the eldest son of that time. Jacob, same thing. And Jesus, when he's described as firstborn, it means preeminence. It means that over every creature, he is above them. He has high priority. He has all of the, all of the riches of the Godhead are his. And so, again, this is just an underscoring of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. Now, verse 16 tells us, for by him all things were created there, there, that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. You know, when we think about all things being created, we immediately turn to the animal world. We, we think about the little mice. We think about the, the, uh, you know, the furry rabbits, puppy dogs, our beautiful children. Think a little less about mosquitoes, you know, rats that are in the sewers and all that. But Jesus created all things in the, in the earthly realm, but he also created all things in the cosmic realm. And he created all things in the heavenly realm. And the complexity of those things, the interrelationship of those things, it, it, when you think about one mind putting all this together, putting it all into motion to create what we see. It's astounding. But here are some other things that sometimes we forget that Jesus Christ created. Jesus Christ authored love. Now really, just bore in for a moment of what love is all about. Why should any creature have that manner of feeling towards another creature? We're born into a world where everything is against you from the get-go. I mean, you're born wet, naked, and crying. <laughs> and then it gets worse. Um, and yet, we come into this world and we have the capacity to love another human being. Jesus Christ created music. You see how that last song moved everybody in the room? There was, there was a combination of an intellectual engagement to the words. There was a, there was a physical engagement to the beat. But there was a spiritual engagement to the Lord of God. And only music puts those three things together. And, and it's, it's something that always impressed me when I would read any passage in Scripture about heaven because there's so much music there. And God puts music in our hearts because he's put eternity in our hearts. And, and we want to we have that connection with him and with each other. And music does that. And like, every, like anything that's valuable, it could be used for real good things or it could be used for really bad things. And unfortunately, in our day, music is used to motivate and to drive people in, in very bad directions. But it is a beautiful creation. Beauty itself is created by God. The appreciation of beauty. What comes from beauty is color. 
organization. Things that draw you into it and that just just satisfy your soul. How about empathy? That we would care for the plight of another person. That anyone would go somewhere out of their way to help another person because you understand their need. That's created by God. Another thing that we learn... Another thing that we learn is that all things are created for him. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. You ever try and drive a Phillips head screw with a flathead screwdriver? Doesn't that just frustrate the heck out of you? You end up messing up the head. Now you can't drive it anymore. Now it's stuck in there and I can't get it out because a Phillips head screwdriver now will not fit because I've messed it all up. It's because you used something that was not, did not have as its purpose unscrewing that screw. This is the frustration that I think human beings, so, so many human beings experience in just living their life is that they are, they are using their life for a purpose that God has not intended. I hope there's nobody in this room that has that level of frustration in their lives. Because the reason for which you were made is told to us right here. All things were created through him and for him. And I'm not saying you've got to go and be a monk. You've got to go and be a pastor. You've got to go and be a missionary or anything else. You be the way God has gifted you, whether that's being a good accountant, uh, being a good software engineer, being a good carpenter. But you live for him. And that means that you are a walking, talking, Holy Spirit-filled vessel of Jesus. And wherever you go and whatever you do and how you do it reflects, magnifies, and glorifies him. And when you live in that way, you are living according to your purpose because you have been created by him and for him. And... <laughs> this is where we get into, um, well, this is where we get into that arm wrestling match that began at the garden. And that is people don't want to live for someone else. They want to live for themselves, don't they? And so you got to get, you got to lawyer this passage as a, as, a, as a godless human being, right? You've got to, you've got to get to the place where you deny that God has created you. Because if you deny that God has created you, why then there's nothing in between you and you. And so you, you can be as God. The lie of the garden. You can, you can drive your own life. You can live for yourself. You can get things going for yourself. You don't have to worry about other people. You don't have to have a sovereign over you. You could be the sovereign of your life. And when we seek that freedom, if you want to call it that, it's really bondage, but the enemy is so clever at wrapping things in a wrapping paper that makes you think it's one thing when indeed it's something else. What ends up happening is what we read in Romans chapter 1. You know, it's funny, I can't even think of how many Bible studies we've been going through recently that seem to bring us back to Romans chapter 1. 
But in the 18th verse of Romans chapter 1, here's the explanation of people who want to reject what we just read in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1 about God being the creator of all things and, and that we're created for him. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What's the truth? God created me. I'm going to suppress it in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them because God's shown it to us. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? Because we want to rule our own lives. We, we don't want to be created for the purpose of God because we have that sin nature. And the easiest way to, to explain our desire to be sovereign over our own lives is to deny that God has created us. And this, as you know, has been, this has been the battleground between the unbelieving masses and the believing church. And you know, I have to tell you, is, we'll get into this next week, but as much as I was impressed with the high school that we spoke at, which is as Christian as any place I've ever been, and there's a story behind that too. They still don't teach biblical creation. And in, in the words that I shared, because my topic with them, I wanted them, I wanted to make a case for them of why it is reasonable to believe in Jesus Christ and give your life to him. And the best way, I thought, would be to contrast the worldview of Christianity with the worldview of the world. And I brought into that conversation the reasonableness of the biblical creation story, only to learn later that that was news. Now, that's why I say deeper teaching is a is, is huge need there, but... I've mentioned this guy to you before, and you can find him on YouTube, but his name is Dr. Mark Eastman, medical doctor, ex-atheist. You know what saved him? His understanding of the genetic code. His understanding of the genetic code, to him, provided irrefutable evidence that there's a creator. He just, these are his words. This is how he describes the genetic code. He's thinking of it in terms of a secularist, somebody who's scientifically minded, which he certainly is. He said... The genetic code is a redundant, error-correcting, self-replicating, digital information storage and retrieval system. Now, if you're a computer geek, a lot of those words resonate. The part that doesn't resonate, and you wish it did, was self-replicating. Okay? But error-correcting, redundancy, digital information storage retrieval. We, we strive to write code like that in our meager little capabilities. Scientists cannot produce even the most basic component of DNA. And yet the best and the brightest in the scientific community of today insist that the complexities that are in DNA came about merely by chance. This is Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, they refused to recognize him as God. We're without excuse because 
He has shown us his Godhead by the things that are made. A man by the name of Sir Frederick Hoyle. He was an award-winning astronomer and mathematician. He used to head the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge University. He's now dead. He died, I think, in 2001. But he studied the mathematical probabilities of the genetic code being developed by chance. And he wrote, he wrote his findings uh, in an article that appeared in Nature magazine back in 1981. And this is what he concluded. He said, the probability of the genetic code coming into existence by chance is similar to a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a 747 from the materials found therein. <laughs> Could you imagine that? He also compared the chance of a single functioning protein being assembled by chance from amino acids found in creation. He, he, he likened that to a solar system full of blind men solving Rubik's Cubes simultaneously. These are not, this is not hyperbole. This, you, he uses these ridiculous and entertaining descriptions to simply say that the, the numbers we're talking about are astronomical. They, they just, you wonder how people who are so smart and so educated could even give any plausible nod towards that kind of thing. And yet, this is what people Glom onto. We could go on and on. I could go on and on. Maybe you couldn't, but we won't. We'll move on to verse 17 because there we learn that he is the sustainer of all things. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It just is. Because it is such a clever thought. See, we... Most people who have any notion of God, they're okay with the idea that God created all things. But they don't take it any further. How about that God not only created all things, but they stay created because he wills it so. And you might say, well, well you know, what's the big deal? Detroit builds a, well, let's not use that. The Japanese build a car and it stays a car. I mean, you know, over years things break down, second law of thermodynamics, but you know, you know what I mean? You don't have to struggle to keep it a car and and there are those that want to think well god created everything and then he stepped back he was kind of this impartial observer kind of like when we were kids we used to think it was kind of fun to get a big cardboard box put a snake and a toad in there just watch what happens you know <laughs> you know so people think that god kind of relates that way to his creation he doesn't he cares deeply about it jesus is Actively sustaining all things. The earth is in the right place relative to deep space in the sun because God wills it so. There are so many things that are going on in the world that keep going on because God wills it so. The tides keep coming in and keep going out because God wills it so. They don't come in and keep coming in and keep coming in unless you're in Florida a couple weeks ago, but they, you know what I mean. They, things keep going because God wills it to. But here is the, the coolest, and I hate for this Bible study to become a science lesson, but it's just, it, science should be building people's faith in God, not leading them away from that. I think it was Louis, Louis Pasteur who said, a little bit of science will lead you away from God, but a lot of science will draw you back to him. Here's an example. One of the most dramatic examples of how all things consist due to the power of Jesus is in quantum mechanics. It's, it's that part of physics 
that deals with subatomic particles, things like protons and neutrons and electrons. And physicists have sort of organized the forces in nature into two, or four rather, four categories. There's gravity, we all know what that is. Um, there's electromagnetism, we know what that is. But then there's what they call the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force. And so when we look at uh, an atom, for example, and we know that an atom, uh, a molecule, uh, has a, um, a nucleus, and then it has electrons around it. And we know that the electromagnetic force is what keeps those electrons moving around the nucleus with the protons because protons are positively charged, electrons are negatively charged, and so it keeps things in balance. What's, but that electromagnetic force is what makes it difficult to understand what keeps the nucleus together because in the nucleus are multiple protons. And if we're just thinking in terms of the electromagnetic force, they should be blowing themselves apart. In other words, all of matter should blow apart because in a, in a nucleus of every atom is, is a bunch of protons that shouldn't relate to one another, or even coexist with one another. And so the best, and I mean, I'm not being critical. I'm no scientist. The best explanation they could come up with is what what, is, what they call the strong nuclear force. It's another force overriding electromagnetism, which, which governs everything else that we see and know in our, in our world. And so this other force is what keeps all of matter from blowing apart. I call that force something different. Jesus. Because he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now, it's interesting because uh, the Bible actually tells us that there is a time when Jesus will let go. He will let go of letting all things consist. You may have seen these verses before, but this is found in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, speaks of the day of the Lord, the end of the age. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That will be a moment when all things will no longer consist because Jesus wills that they will no longer consist. It is as simple as that. All things were created by the word of his mouth and by the mere thought of his mind, they could cease to exist. Moving on to verse 18, we read, and he is the head of the body. Now we're back in our text. He is the head of the body the church, who is the beginning of the, the, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. You see, there is no consciousness, there's no purpose, there's no activity in any body without a head to direct it. It troubles me to see in some quarters of the greater church where the body has been divorced from the head. The poison of liberal theology has diminished Christ in his deity, in his humanity, in his creative power, in his justice, 
to the point where now we are a headless, not we, but, but portions of the church are a headless mass of confusion and fleshliness. And we have reached a point where in many quarters of the church, Christ is no longer preeminent. Celebrity preachers and musicians have become the objects of worship, it seems, in a lot of these quarters of the greater church. And this is why I think Paul made it a special point to say that, look, these Gnostic teachers that would come in, Gnosticism is just another wrapper for look at me, worship me. Give me your adulation because I am making you closer to God. No, you're not. I'm not even doing that. The Holy Spirit does that for you. I help you understand the word of God so that you will be more open to let God change your heart and enlarge your heart. That's it. And there's no one who's ever occupied a pulpit that has ever done it, that has ever actually been able to do more than that. And these teachers that were coming before the Colossians, they, they, they were stealing God's glory. And they were leading people astray. And this is something that God will not have. That in all things, he may have preeminence. Another way of saying that is Jesus Christ is totally necessary and totally sufficient to save. And we can never forget that. And we can never let anyone teach us anything different. And then finally in verses 19 and 20, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness should dwell. Everything that is God dwells in Jesus. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by himself, whether on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ, and this is something that I enjoyed teaching when we were in India. Ultimately, Jesus Christ reconciles all things to himself. For many, it will be a reconciliation that comes through judgment. But they will no longer be opposed to God because they will be under his feet and out of the way. And for people like you, he will have reconciled you to him through his blood on the cross of Calvary. And you will be with him forever because he is preeminent. He is totally sufficient. He is totally necessary for us to be right with God. Because of our sinful nature as human beings, we have a predisposition to disbelieve everything I've just told you in this lesson. He is God. He is creator. He is sustainer of all things. He is the head of the church. And he will and has reconciled all things to himself. Pray those things when you start your prayer time because they remind you and you can celebrate them. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father God, we are just awash in your goodness. I thank you for this church, Lord. What a privilege you have given me to shepherd here, to share Christ here, to have these saints to join in ministry that we could bring your word across the world and even right here in our town. All of this has been made possible by you and for you because you are God 
great creator of all things, sustainer of all things, head of the church, reconciler of all things, the God of the universe, the king of our hearts. Thank you for meeting us here today. We love you, Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray, amen. Amen, have a great day.